we see that we are now in the third division of the book of Leviticus. The law given to Israel, and it gets very personal in these chapters. We see that worship involves separation. They were to be very different from the other nations that were around them. In chapter 11, God speaks about food, what they can eat and what they can't eat. Now, if you think my mother was picky and forceful, where do you read this chapter? This is what you can eat. This is what you can't eat. It's forbidden. If you eat it, you'll be unclean. Chapter 12 talks about having kids, childbirth, and the sacrifices that are to be offered when a male child and a female child are born. The circumcision rite is mentioned in that chapter. Then over in chapter 13, skin diseases are covered. And in chapter 14, principally leprosy until we get into chapter 15, which are the discharges of the body. But now there's a principle here that I want to see as we get into these little detailed uh, dictates of the law. The great thing that I see in this is that God wants to be a part of every aspect of our life. He doesn't want to be left out of anything. To me, that's exciting. God's interested in what I eat. God's interested in my body. He created it to be healthy. God's interested in the birth of a child and all of the intimacies of life God wants to stick his nose in. Sometimes you wonder, why is God sticking his nose into this area of my life? I've given him all of these other areas of my life. I've given him, you know, my time on Sunday and uh, during the week and I, I, I pray and I uh, will even witness on occasion. Why can't I just have this little area all to myself? God wants no stone left unturned in your life. He loves you so much, he wants to stick your nose in every part, in every business of your life. I think that's great. What have I got to lose? He created me. He knows all about me. The smartest thing I can do is to dedicate my body to him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies unto God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. The most reasonable thing you can do with this body of yours is to say, it's, it's yours, God. I dedicate my life to you. I dedicate my body to you. These hands, these feet, this mouth, these eyes. Use me as your instrument, your tool. Life is exciting. It's reasonable to do that. It's very unreasonable to say, I want this little area all to myself. I like this little sin. Just bug off, all right, God? Well, God won't. And your body is important to God. In the book of 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now, in this chapter, there's the law about what you can eat, what you can't eat. Clean and unclean animals. Um, the law, the distinction between clean and unclean, however, didn't start here. In fact, if you remember Genesis, clean and unclean distinctions go all the way back to the time before the flood. 
When God said, Noah, build a boat. Take seven pairs of the clean and two pairs of the unclean animals and put them on the ark. So even way back in the antediluvian era, before the flood, there was the distinction between clean and unclean. Now, as we are climbing into these detailed chapters, let's briefly review why God gave the law. Because though we're not under the law today, there's a reason God gave to Israel the law. Number one, and there's five reasons, basic reasons that God gave the law. Number one, to revere God. To revere God. If you look down in verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. One of the themes of this book is holiness. It's all over the place. I'm God. I'm holy. You ought to be holy. You belong to me. I've redeemed you from Egypt. In fact, it mentions that in verse 45. So Israel is to be totally consecrated to God. And as you read through this book, you understand that almost every function of life takes on almost a ceremonial quality, including eating. It becomes ceremonial. It becomes almost a ritual. Not in the bad sense, in the good sense. It becomes a form of worship. I was, I would say liberated. That's the best word I can choose. The day I found that God wanted to be a part of every waking moment of my life. See, I had relegated God to Sunday mornings. This is the Lord's day. And after all, if it's the Lord's day, then I'll give God time. I found out that every day was the Lord's day. Well, don't you worship God on Sunday? Yeah. And Monday. And Tuesday. And to me, Sunday is the same as Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday. Paul said, one man esteems one day of the week over the other days of the week. Another man esteems all of the days alike. Let each one be persuaded in his own mind. All right. In my own mind, I'm persuaded that all the days ought to be God's days. I remember when I get off work a little bit early and I'd head down to the beach, take out my surfboard, wax it up. Nice set was coming in. I felt a little guilty. I think, you know, maybe I should be witnessing or something. But I was enjoying it. And I found myself saying, Lord, I pray that you'd even bless me with a big set. Big waves, round, Lord, just tubular, about four or five foot. And then God answering the prayer. And fellowshipping with God while I was doing something I'd enjoy. And I found that it was awesome to fellowship with God, not only in church, not only as I opened my Bible, which I love to do, but in every aspect of my life. So all of my life is to be, in a sense, a form of worship. So the law was given to revere God. Secondly, the law was given to regard man. To regard man. In other words, the law was given out of love. How many people do you know say, oh, the Old Testament, there's a God of wrath. The New Testament is a God of love. Oh, the commandments are so negative. No, they're not. They're very positive. It just depends on your view. A few months ago, I was in California. I was speaking at a camp. I decided it was time to visit my mom and dad, take them out to lunch. I was driving to my home. 
normal speed. But in my rearview mirror, what did I see? A black and white CHP. I white-knuckled the steering wheel. I got real tense. And then I thought, now, now why am I so tense? I'm not breaking the law, but because of all of my past experiences with the law in that part of the country and my previously held views of the law, I was panicked. I mean, just <gasps> CHP. Because, listen, I've had so many run-ins with those guys in times past. This is true confession night. Oh, yes. In fact, at my father's funeral, the two guys that used to stop me a lot were there, and I said, you are the guys that stop me every week. Give me the tickets. Oh, we didn't give you tickets. We gave you warnings. But as I saw that guy in the rearview mirror, I panicked and I thought, there is my view of the law. I'm seeing it as negative. When in effect, the law was put there not to be negative, but to be positive. Okay, there's a speed limit posted. There's yellow lines. You can't pass. That's not negative. That's positive. It's given out of love. The law says I can travel on this road. I can go from one destination to another destination. I can get there safely. But there are parameters so that I won't get killed and so that I won't kill others because there's others going on that road like me. And so the laws of God were given because God loves man. God's interested in what they eat. God's interested in childbirth. God's interested in the diseases and the healing of the disease. So the law was given to revere God. The law was given also to regard man. Third, the law was given to restrain evil to restrain evil. It's like a tether to keep at bay, to keep in check the restraints that we have because man is bent toward evil. We're born with a sinful nature as we're going to mention in just a minute. But it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, know this, the law was not made for a righteous person but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers. That covers about everybody. It's a tether to restrain evil. Fourthly, it's given to reveal sin. I look at the law and I see that I haven't kept it in many regards and it reveals the sinful heart of man. There was a newspaper editor who had some space left in his newspaper, small little outfit in the West. He had a little bit left, space left in his column and so he printed simply the Ten Commandments, unabridged, but without any commentary, just the Ten Commandments. Somebody wrote in three weeks later and said, please cancel my subscription, you're getting too personal. Funny, isn't it, how the law of God can just reveal what is lacking in our own lives. You might look at a needle and say, beautiful, sharp, contoured, put it under a microscope. You see all of the imperfections, all of the irregularities, so is our life. Put it under the microscope of the law and you see all of the flaws, the things you haven't kept, how you have fallen short of God's laws. Fifthly and finally, the law was given to reveal Jesus Christ. To reveal Jesus Christ. And, and really, that's what I love about studying it. There's one Bible study. There's one Bible study in the Scripture. It's not recorded, but I really wish it were. I wish I had a cassette of it. Wish it was written. Jesus was walking seven miles from Jerusalem with two of his disciples after his resurrection on the road toward Emmaus. 
They didn't know who he was. They were despondent. Jesus said, how come you're so despondent and forlorn? Jesus said, uh, the Cleopas, one of the disciples, said, don't you know the things that have happened of late? How that Jesus of Nazareth, a man mighty in word and in deed, that we thought would be the deliverer of Israel, he was crucified by our rulers, by the Jews. We hoped that he would be our deliverer, but he's dead. And, oh, there's these women who said he's risen from the dead, but they're women. And a couple of the disciples said that his tomb was empty too, but it's all over with. And Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written, not not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them, listen, in all of the scripture, the things concerning himself. Oh, I wish that Bible study were preserved. Jesus beginning in Moses with the law and the prophets and expounding in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And afterwards it says the disciples turned to one another and said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the word as we walked along the way? And so in the law we see Jesus Christ predicted in all of the scripture. It was said of Charles Spurgeon, you could put him in any place in the Bible and he'd always have it point to Jesus Christ. So the law can be positive. In my house, there are certain laws, and if you're a parent, you know that you have to set those parameters as well. Nathan doesn't always like my laws. He has to be to bed at 8.30. It's a law. He doesn't like it. He just says, oh, Dad, please. No, I know you, son, and I know if you go to bed at 9, 9.30 or 10, it'll be hard to get you up for school in the morning. I love you enough to enforce this law so that you'll be strong and aware enough for school tomorrow. It's because I love him. Now, Nathan, you can ride your bicycle, you can go to your friend's house, but you always have to tell me where you're going and you always have to call me as soon as you arrive at your destination. So restricting. No. It's because I love him and I want him to be safe. I want to know where he's at so I can protect him. There are chores for him to do. We have a dog. Need I say more? So these are the positive aspects of the law. And in this chapter that we haven't even begun with because I've been so long-winded, but I think explanatory of this, we have the dietary laws that were given for two basic reasons. Number one, to make these people of Israel different from their pagan neighbors, to set them apart, to be holy unto the Lord. Now, do you remember my scenario that I began with, I think, last week or the week before? I said, I have a problem. I'm a Midianite. I live out here in the desert. I want to get close to God. I don't know how to do that. But I see these people called Israelites. They seem so happy, so vibrant. God is in their midst. How can I have a relationship with God? Imagine my shock when I discover I have to be circumcised like they are, though I'm now an adult, not an infant. I have to go through the sacrifices, and I have to change my eating habits. In other words, when I follow God, there's a radical change that takes place. It's not just, yeah, you know, I need God in my life, and I've got this in my life, and I've got that, and I've kind of got this God shelf that's empty, vacated. I might as well just sort of put him over here. God won't have that. God wants all of your life revolving around him. And that's what this Midianite would have found out. Also, these laws are given because God wants them to live 
healthy lives. Let's face it, we're to blame oftentimes for ill health. What we eat, the stuff in our diet, the arteriosclerosis that develops over the years, and the lack of exercise. And it just seems as we process food more, we get more chemicals in it, and as time goes on that the human species just tends to break down and get weaker, even though we have technology. And so God loved them and wanted to live long, healthy lives, and so he gave them these parameters. And the Jews had less disease than the peoples around them. A few years back, uh, I traveled overseas with uh, one of my assistant pastors, and... Um, it was really the first time he had traveled. You know Gino Geraci. And uh, he'd gone to Mexico and uh, other states, but he had never traveled overseas. So I said, let's go to India. So I took him over to India. And poor guy, you know, we uh, were eating at a pastor's conference, the food of the locals, and he got sick. I mean, way sick. Big league sick. He got dysentery. And he was stooped over the toilet for a few days. He finally got better, but he had a queasy stomach. And then after India, I took him to Egypt. The food wasn't that great. Better than India, but compared to what you and I are used to, not all that great. Then after that, I took him to Greece a couple days. Then finally, I, I had him in Israel. And we rented a car, and I said, Nathan, uh, Nathan Gino, we have three days here. And I'm going to show you the land of Israel at top speed. I'm going to give you a quick tour. I'll drive you around all the places. By the time he got to Israel, I was excited because the food there is kosher. They follow the restrictions that we read about in these chapters. So I got him in Jerusalem. I said, it's okay now, buddy. You can eat anything here. It's all kosher. And he wouldn't buy it. At that point, he had so many bad experiences, he said, uh-uh. I'm going to wait till I get a Big Mac at home. I'm not going to eat it. You know, I'll eat packaged food. But I said, listen, this is kosher food. These people are the cleanest on earth. You can eat anything in Jerusalem. It's good kosher food. The rabbi has sort of sanctified it. and You can go for it. No, I'm not going to try it. He just would But the Bible says, I don't care. I'm not going to eat. He, he was so sensitive <laughs> after that. Verses 1 through 8. Let's start reading it. It's the regulations on quadrupeds, four-footed animals. To sum it up, they were allowed to eat animals that had a split hoof and chewed the cud. And if they chewed the cud but didn't have a split hoof, or if they had a split hoof but didn't chew the cud, couldn't eat them. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Among the beasts, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, chewing the cud that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hoofs. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs, it's unclean to you. The rock, hyrax, because it chews the cud and does not have cloven hoofs, it's unclean to you. The hare or the rabbit, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs, it's unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, a device of having cloven hoofs yet does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. Now, some of these things I wouldn't want to eat anyway. 
I've never had an appetite for camel. I can't say I'd walk a mile for a camel. In fact, I've been in the Middle East and I've had a camel down in Sharm el-Sheikh spit on me from about five feet away. And after that I just said, we are now enemies. This means war. I wouldn't want to eat a camel. In verse 6 it mentions the hare or the rabbit. The rabbit doesn't technically chew the cud, though it has the appearance. If you've seen a rabbit eat, it looks like it's chewing the cud. What I mean by technically is that to chew the cud, you eat, you swallow, you regurgitate the food back up. Not you, not that you'd ever want to do this, but an animal that chews the cud brings it back up, chews on it again, swallows it, brings it back up, and gets all of the nutrition out of every bite. Now, a rabbit looks like it chews the cud, but technically it doesn't. But because it has a cloven hoof, uh, it is classified here with the cud chewers by appearance. Verses 9 through 12 deal with fish. The fish had to have fins and scales. Those are the two marks on it that meant it was okay. So you couldn't eat mackerel, eels, shellfish. They were unclean. Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh. You shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. Now, as many of you know, in Israel they depended on fresh fish. They still do. It's part of their staple diet. The Mediterranean has an abundance of fish. The Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. Fish is a, a part of their diet. They were restricted to skins, to skins, to scales and fins. Skins, that's sort of a combination of, it's a new word, I just develop them as I teach the Bible. Skins, that's a fin and a scale. You couldn't eat mollusks. If you're a shrimp lover, if you like uh, certain of the mollusks and shellfish that I love. Now this would have been a problem for me, especially after the way I love shellfish. No more shrimp, no more scallops. Oh no, gotta have it. However, there are times of the year still where these shellfish secrete a poison. And instead of giving them a time scale or a computer printout of when this is okay to eat, just don't eat them. It's for your own good. Different parts of the world, there's bad poisons and secretions, and they're high among the mollusks, so don't eat them. When I was in China, I had shark fin and shark fin soup. Now, that would be unkosher. It has a fin but no scales. I didn't know what I was eating. They fed me turtle, shark fin soup, and all sorts of weird things, and I kept asking what they were, and finally Chuck Smith said, I wouldn't ask if I were you. It's better just to eat and... You know, ask God to sanctify it and, and let him cleanse it spiritually and just go on. But uh, certainly I wouldn't be considered uh, kosher. Verses 13 through 19, birds are given. The prohibition is carnivorous birds and those that have unclean habits. Birds of prey like eagles, hawks, bats. Not that you'd want one. Um, you, you might say at this point, oh, you've got a problem here. There's a discrepancy in the Bible. A bat is not a bird. That's true. But I would 
say back to you, the word Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew here, for bird is simply or literally flying things. So it sort of covers its bases. These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. The kite, the falcon after its kind. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich. The short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Again, not that I've ever had a tremendous appetite to have bat stew or any of these other things like, boy, I love a vulture today. Aren't you hungry for a vulture? Let's have vulture for Thanksgiving. We'll stuff one and just set it out on the table. Now, ostrich, though it's mentioned, is tasty. I had it when I was in Africa. It's very lean, low in fat, high in protein, but forbidden because it really is an aggressive bird. You get, get into a fight with an ostrich and it could be all over. Verses 20 through 23, insects are covered. Uh, those that leap are permitted. Those that crawl are not. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Amen. <laughs> Yet these you may eat of every flying insect uh -oh, that creeps on all fours. Those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. Oh, yummy. <laughs> but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. So, no chocolate-covered ants, though chocolate-covered grasshoppers are permitted. Now, you can leave any of these off my menu, all right? I don't want any of them. However, in some places, these were okay to eat. In fact, John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. That is carob honey, honey from the carob tree and locusts. Now, I'd never get into that. There are some people today, though, who get into it. I can't imagine John the Baptist just kind of grabbing little locusts, and then... <laughs> we have a couple in the church who's in Africa, and I heard him tell an interesting story. <laughs> there was a woman they saw who was bowed to the ground, and she was pounding the earth, just beating it real hard. And then she'd stop, and she'd have her head down, and they thought, she's pounding the ground listening. Like, they're, they're sending some kind of call, maybe to a friend in the next house, like, let's go out for lunch or tea. When they got closer, they found out that the slapping of the earth causes the ants to come to the surface, and she had her lips over the hole, and she was taking in as many ants as she could with one breath, and it was considered a delicacy in that part of Africa. That's unclean, according to the scriptures. <laughs> Though, if she wanted to do that with grasshoppers, no problem. That was permitted. On down through the rest of the chapter, verses are given about contact with death. If you touched anything that was dead, a dead carcass of any kind, you were unclean until the evening, and then you had the proper sacrifice, and you were able to get back into the fellowship with Israel. That is, an animal that died without slaughtering it. If you touched an animal by slaughtering it, like you would for sacrifice, 
or so that you could eat it, you were not unclean. But if it died without that slaughtering, it wasn't intentional, you'd be unclean till evening. And uh, there are verses about other things that you can't eat, uh, moles, uh, the mouse, lizards, geckos. Don't eat them. Look down at verse 44. The general principle is holiness. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beasts and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Now most of these animals were unclean feeders and prone to disease. We have found that out. The things that God was forbidding, it wasn't like he wanted to punish them. It's like, let me give you a test here. I want to make your life miserable, so I'm just going to dangle this little thing you can't eat in front of you and just say no, no. God knew. They had no FDA. Their FDA was God. Moses didn't understand about communicable diseases through food. He didn't know what E. coli was or other things that be, could be transmitted, bacteria. But God did. So God just said, eat this, don't eat that, okay? No questions asked. I love you. Uh, go on about your business. So uh, God was protecting them. I wanted to read, before we get into the next chapter, a little tiny little paragraph by Dr. Kellogg, S.H. Uh, Kellogg, not from the Kellogg Company, but had a medical background and is a biblical expositor, quote, one of the greatest discoveries of modern science is the fact that a large number of diseases to which animals are liable are due to the presence of low forms of parasitic life. To such diseases, those which are unclean in their feeding will be especially exposed, while none will perhaps be found wholly exempt. Another discovery of recent times, which has a no less important bearing on the question raised in this chapter is the now ascertained fact that many of these parasitic diseases are common to both animals and men and may be communicated by the former to the latter. And he goes on in another paragraph, even so, long ago as the days when the plague was desolating Europe, the Jews so universally escaped infection that by their exemption, the popular suspicion was excited into fury, and the Jews were accused of causing the fearful mortality among their Gentile neighbors by poisoning the wells and the springs. The Jews were healthy, and during all the plagues and the diseases, the non-Jews said, it's got to be the Jews who are perpetrating some kind of scam, some way to get rid of us. It's their fault. And they incurred persecution because they were healthy while much of the population was getting sick and dying. Now, in chapter 12, we talk about childbirth. And as you can see, every phase of life, even the deepest, most intimate area of life, is to be related somehow to God. When a child was born in Israel, if it was a male on the eighth day, it would be circumcised. Whether it was male or female, a sacrifice had to be given, an offering, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now, I think because a sin offering had to be given after childbirth, there is a spiritual implication here, namely this. We are sinners from the moment we enter the world. 
We're a sinner by nature. We are depraved by nature. The Bible teaches the depravity of man. It's not very popular. Today, it's certainly not popular. For we think all people are created wonderful. Everybody's good. And we have to be taught evil. But everybody is born innately good. And when I hear that, I, I think, gee, these kids or these people probably never had kids who came up with this. You have to train a child to do right. Aberration comes very natural to a child. Paul said, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. That's why we need redemption from the moment we're born. And so a child was born in Israel, and a sin offering had to be given. I wanted to read something the Minnesota Crime Commission wrote trying to explain the rise in crime rate. This is a secular agency, all right? The Minnesota Crime Commission. The crime rate is going up. Violent crime is, murder is incredibly peaked of late. The Minnesota Crime Commission gave a partial reason for the rise in crime rate. Quote, every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. In fact, he is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. You see, today people think, oh, that child is just so innocent. And it looks innocent, and it kind of laughs and coos, and even the cry is cute. But the Bible says death entered the world through one man. Sin entered the world by one man, and death through sin, and death has spread to all men, Romans chapter 5 tells us. And so we need redemption even from birth. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. Now, why is she unclean? She's not morally unclean, it's ceremonially unclean. Okay, keep that in mind. She is unclean, I think, for the, the basic reason is she has brought another sinner into the world. That's as plain as I can make it. Oh, it's a beautiful little baby, but sin is passed on from generation to generation, from Adam's sin. And at birth, she has brought another sinner, like Eve, who bore Cain was not the deliverer that she thought, but was in fact the first murderer. And so this is sort of a reminder of that. Verse 3, On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall continue in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any hollowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Now again, circumcision goes all the way back to Genesis 17. Abraham had Isaac. God said, take Isaac and circumcise him. That's a sign in his flesh of a covenant that I am making. Now circumcision was done 
primarily to indicate a relationship with God. The flesh was cut. Now, it was also cleaner. It made the male, uh, uh, for physical reasons, cleaner is more pure. But spiritually, it was a sign of the fact that when we come to God, we cut off the obedience to our flesh and we give allegiance and devotion to God. That's what it meant. That's why, though Israel kept the covenant of circumcising their babies on the eighth day, and they weren't following God with their hearts, God said, circumcise therefore your hearts, the foreskin of your hearts. That's what I'm after. I want the inward purity. Circumcision to the Jew is akin to baptism of the Christian. It's an outward sign of an inward change. It's like a wedding ring. I have a ring on my left finger. You would infer that I'm married. I am. But anybody wearing a ring on their left finger isn't necessarily married. Though seeing a ring, you would say, guy's got to probably, got to be married. And if I walked around without it, you would infer that I'm not married. Though I'm not married because I have the ring. I gave this, I gave this my, my wife gave me this ring at our wedding and I gave her a ring and she still wears it. But it's an outward sign of the covenant. And so is circumcision to God and so is baptism for Christians. Now the eighth day is interesting. The eighth day was best, medical experts tell us, because of blood clotting concerns. Though today blood clotting is really not an issue. Inject the child with vitamin K and uh, it can be done at any time. But in those days they didn't have shots with vitamin K. So the eighth day because of blood clotting reasons. You know, God is marvelous. Created the human body, knows the eighth day is the best, says circumcise him on the eighth day. When the days of repurification, look down at verse 6, are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or female. And if she's not able to bring a lamb, she, shall, she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Who do we know that did this in the New Testament? Mary in Luke chapter 2. She brought the two birds because she couldn't afford the lamb. She was poor. Her and Joseph were in the poverty class, so they brought the birds as the alternate offering. But what I think is important from that is that she brought a sin offering because she was a sinner. Now Mary is blessed. And from this time forth, the angel said, all generations shall call you blessed. And I call Mary blessed. She certainly was the most blessed woman who ever lived. No doubt very godly, no doubt very humble, a special vessel chosen. She's not the mother of God, though she was the mother of Jesus. Because then you have the old logical, which came first, the chicken or the egg debate with that. But she is blessed. And I do reverence her and I do revere her. Do I pray to her or worship her? No. Was she sinless? Was she assumed into heaven? No. 
She recognized that she was a sinner when she said that she gave allegiance to God, her Savior, in the Magnificat of Mary, as it is called. She recognized she needed a Savior, and here, according to the law, she brought a sin offering. Now, in chapter 13, and we're going to end with this chapter, probably, we deal with leprosy, or really skin diseases. The uh, medical profession would look at uh, chapter 13 and, and classify it under elephantiasis, broad term of different skin diseases, including leprosy, but leprosy is really specified more in chapter 14. The Hebrew word uh, in this chapter is saraat, which simply means an infectious skin disease, which includes mildew or rot, like you'd have on clothes or on walls in a very moist climate. In fact, in these chapters, you have the cleansing of clothing that have the disease, same disease, or a house that needs to be cleansed uh, from mildew or rot. Uh, what's interesting is that the priest sort of fulfills the role of the doctor. You've got a problem, you've got a disease, you've got a spot on your flesh, you go to a priest and he'll examine you. Let's look at it. The word of, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall look at the sore on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the sore is turned white, the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's a leprous sore. The priest shall look at him, pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and its hair is not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. And the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and indeed if the sore appears to be as it was, and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days, fourteen total. And the priest shall look at him again on the seventh day, and if indeed the sore is darkened and the sore is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a scab. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab should at all spread over the skin after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And if the priest sees that the scab has indeed spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is sara'at. It is, as translated here, leprosy. Priest would inspect the guy after a seven-day period. First of all, you come to the priest. I got this spot. Okay, seven days, buddy, over here. Seven days, he comes out, shows himself to the priest. Again, if it looks like this spot or this problem is in check, just to make sure he's kept for seven more days. If there's no spreading of it, if it takes care of itself, he pronounces him clean, ceremonially. washes his clothes, he's out of there. If after the 14 days, the two periods of inspections, it seems to spread, he is pronounced and given that horrible sentence, unclean, where it says here, it is leprosy. Now, as we go on, several scenarios are given. As you look through the chapter, if the skin turns white, if, or if that spot turns white. Uh, if there's a boil deeper than the skin, there's certain regulations for that. If the hair turns white. If the skin is burned by fire and an ulcerous sore develops and it gets in a bacteria and that spreads, there's regulations for that. It could be infected. And also if it involves scales on the head uh, or in the beard, he was also isolated. Now look down at verse 45. 
Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn, his head shall be shaved bare. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, and he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean, he is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside the camp. Leprosy is under the banner of this Sara'at skin diseases, and it's specified more in the next chapter. Leprosy, what we would call Hansen disease, is caused by a bacteria called Myobacterium leprae. It's very infectious. It starts very small, it starts undetected, but it sort of snowballs and it can take over the whole body and it can be also very, very contagious. It was the most feared disease in the ancient world. Now there were some social implications here, as we've read. First of all, you rip your clothes, you shave your head, you cover your mouth so that you don't spread the disease, and anytime somebody comes up and says, hey man, how are you doing? You back away and you say, unclean. You weren't allowed to live in any town. You weren't allowed in the synagogue except in a special room called the Miktzah. You had your own little place. You couldn't get near people. Can you imagine how socially debilitating that was? If you had a wife, the day he says you're unclean, you don't see her. You can't embrace her anymore. If you have children, you'll never snuggle them in your arm. You are a walking corpse. You're dead to the world. You're like being in prison, incarcerated. Though you are free, you wander around the deserts and the open spaces. One rabbi wrote in ancient times, when I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near me. Another rabbi said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on the street where a leper had once walked. So imagine the feeling of isolation and aloneness that leopards, leopards, lepers felt in those days. Then also, on top of that, the physical implications, the deterioration. William Barclay, a great scholar, though liberal in many cases, talks about how leprosy spreads. And he says, quote, it might begin with little nodules which go on to ulcerate. The ulcers develop a foul discharge. The eyebrows fall out. The eyes become staring. The vocal cords become ulcerated. The voice becomes hoarse and the breath wheezes. The hands and feet always ulcerate. Slowly the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growths. The average course of that kind of leprosy is nine years. And it ends in mental decay, coma, and ultimate death. Leprosy might begin with the loss of all sensation in some part of the body, the nerve trunks are affected, the muscles waste away, the tendons contract until the hands are like claws. There follows ulcerations of the hands and feet, and then comes the progressive loss of fingers and toes, until in the end, the whole hand or the whole foot may drop off. The duration of that kind of leprosy is anything from 20 to 30 years. It is a terrible kind of progressive death in which a man dies by inches. Imagine then, in Matthew chapter 8, when after the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus descends from the mountain, the only person that met him, the first person that met him, I should say, was a man who had leprosy. Jesus said, what do you want? 
He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. And it says Jesus touched him. He hadn't felt a touch in years, perhaps. Nobody would get near him. In fact, maybe as he saw Jesus, he started saying, unclean, unclean. What can I do for you? Uh, you could cleanse me if you want. I want to. Come here. Touched him. Oh, but that's unlawful. You can't touch a leper. He wasn't a leper anymore when Jesus touched him. <laughs> he was healed. He hadn't felt a hand for years. I imagine when Jesus touched him, had I been the leper, I'd have gone. The feel of another warm hand across my face. Oh, Jesus touched that man. The crowd was shocked. Now, leprosy, we can just have enough time to close it off, is a deadly disease that is very reflective of sin. It's a physical disease, but it's very much, it mirrors, I think, the way sin works in a person's life. It begins small and insignificant, a mark, a bright red spot, something that you'd show to a priest and say, hey, check it out, what do I have? Well, let, let me see. It starts out very small and insignificant, but it spreads and takes over everything. And sin does that. It gets a stronghold, and it won't let up. It'll want to take and grip your life and drag you down and be the Achilles heel of your spiritual walk to keep you from growing in Christ. Number two, there was a form of leprosy that was inherited. You could pass it on, obviously, like many communicable diseases, through childbirth. Even as sin is, David said, as we mentioned at the beginning, I was conceived in sin. Conceived in iniquity and sin, my mother brought me forth. Thirdly, it spreads quickly. It's infectious. It's contagious. You know, when you're around people who flagrantly sin, and that's their standard, it becomes easy when that's your crowd. Fourthly, it was a state of living death. You lose sensation. There's an interesting scripture depicting a woman in the New Testament who lives only for pleasure. And it says, she is dead while she is living. Sin does that. You're a spiritual zombie. You're so insensate to what's right and wrong. The more you're involved in it, you start justifying it. Hey, it's okay. Everybody's doing it. It's not wrong. And you can become impervious completely to your own death. And finally, for real leprosy, there is no cure. Even to this day, you can stay the disease, but you cannot eradicate it totally. You can stop it, but you can't cure it. And sin is like that. There is no cure for sin. Self-help, therapy, or anything else won't cure sin. Only God, through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, can take away your sin. Chapter 14 talks about the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. We'll discuss more of that next time, and we'll briefly go through that. And we're going to read next time up through chapter 16, which is the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And you'll see some spiritual analogies that are very, very beautiful. So that'll be for next time. Read ahead, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Sin might be encroaching in your life. 
I know the areas of my flesh that are weak, and I bet you know those areas of your flesh and your life that are weak too, right? And when we yield to them, the easier it becomes to yield to them further. We develop patterns, habits, grooves are cut like a record, and the needle always goes to that groove. And only by God's strength and God's help can that pattern of sin be eradicated. And it can be eradicated by His power, by His blood. A person, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from being born again, is a spiritual leper. You need an act called justification. We have peace with God, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want peace with God, it takes an act, a pronouncement by God. You are not clean. Or excuse me, you are not guilty. I pronounce you clean. Apart from Christ, you are unclean. And you are contagious. And while you live, you are dead. You're like walking death. You come to Christ. You admit that you're a sinner. He cleanses you. He looks at you like the priest would inspect and say, Man, you're clean. You are justified. And all of the things of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh, the rule of the flesh is katagaro, put out of business, rendered inoperative. That's a work of God. You can experience that by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 